from PRX. Hi, I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a writer and a comedian usurping Kurt Anderson. Today in Studio 360. Jack, wait! Jack, please don't go. I love you. I grew up really loving soap operas. How playwright Michael Orr Jackson got the bug. That was my main mode of storytelling from like a very young age. Plus, so we know photojournalists have to move quickly to get their shot. But imagine being an illustrator who actually draws breaking news. I'm someone who's incredibly impatient and that's why I draw so fast, um, which turned out to be very good for journalism because I could get things down really fast, you know, uh, before, before people moved or before a cop found out what I was doing. Artist and writer Molly Crabapple. That's ahead in Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Hi, Studio 360 listeners. Yes, this is Kurt. I have changed everything about myself. It's been the summer, and you know what? Now I'm doing the character of an Irish woman. Isn't it charming? No, not really. This is Maeve Higgins. Now, I'm a writer, I'm a comedian, and don't worry, I'm filling in for Kurt just for today. And that's why I'm wearing his glasses. It's actually really hard for me to see. But his bathrobe is comfy. Okay, to start, I wanted to share something that I recently saw off-Broadway. Blackness, queerness, fighting back to fill this cishet all-white space with a portrait of... So picture this, there's a man on stage and he's dressed as a theatre usher, right? And this character, his name is also Usher, and he's surrounded by almost like a Greek chorus of six other actors. Black and queer as American Broadway... That's from this new musical. It's called A Strange Loop. The premise, it's brilliant. It's pretty complex, so I'm going to leave it to the playwright to explain it. Here he is. His name is Michael Jackson, but it's Michael or Jackson. A Strange Loop is a musical about a black gay man who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who's writing a musical about a black gay man who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who's writing a musical about a black man who works as an extra to Broadway show and sort of cycling through his own perception of himself and his own self-hatred. Usher is absorbed in his own thoughts, in his own anxieties. And the only other characters on stage, those kind of Greek chorus, well, those are his thoughts. They're the six thoughts. Which are six black and queer actors who sort of portray the thoughts in his head as well as sort of everyone in the world, you know, from his parents to then on Grinder to his doctor and so on and so forth. And he's sort of trying to figure out what his musical A Strange Loop should be about. 
So I don't see a lot of musicals, but everybody cool that I follow on Instagram was going to this one musical. There was so much buzz about it. It was practically sold out and it just ended its run at New York's Playwrights Horizon. Michael, congratulations. Welcome to Studio 360. Thank you so much, Maeve. Glad to be here. Um, can we talk about how, I mean, I know that there's so much of you in this. Well, I think there a is. perception of me. But at the same time, it's not autobiographical. Regardless of that, it's emotionally true. So that's sort of how I describe the show. When you talk about it, it reminds me of this interview I read with Nora Ephron. Mm -hmm. And she was like, this didn't happen to me. Because everyone was like, when did that happen to you? Right. <laughs> it's, like, it's kind of a condescension or something. But then it's really, even for me, as you're saying it, I'm like... But, like, your name is Michael R. Jackson. His it's name true. is Usher. You did it's this. It's true. Again, it's a, it's a mix of fact and fiction. And so I could go through the entire piece and go, I had an experience where X. Yeah. I had an experience where Y. But regardless of that, I took all of those things and I made something out of it. And Usher in the piece is making something out of it, which is part of the reason why toward the end... One of his thoughts asked him a question about, is this true? And he's like, well, maybe it isn't, but it feels true. And maybe that's why it resonated with me, because that's what, like, art does. It's like, a, mm -hmm. I didn't have that specific experience. Like, that doesn't matter right. what you're watching and feeling. Like yeah. Something. Sort of the early days of this piece, I used to always say, this piece is for Black gay men and all that. Like, I used to re really be on a soapbox about that. But, like, as I kept working on it, I just started to really reflect on the way in which I wanted this piece to be about what it feels to be a self in general and a Black queer self in particular. And I wanted to have that sort of dual experience because people are often wanting to put Black folks in this sort of weird box as though... Our experience of being Black is not also just the experience of being human. Mm -hmm. Du Bois talks about this, about having double consciousness, of that, like, we're just a person on Earth, but this thing of race has been put on top of us, and we're treated in certain ways, but we never stop also just being ourselves. <laughs> and so as a result of that, if you're a person in the audience who is not Black, who is not queer, or whatever, or some combination of that— you see someone being this thing that you aren't, but also experiencing things that you've experienced. <laughs> and I just think, think it's important for people to understand that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I was reading a lot of Toni Morrison since she passed away recently. Mm -hmm. And then because I was doing this interview with you and I was thinking about both of your work together and how... Yes, I have a quote. I put a quote from her in the bathroom at Clarence Horizon. So if you <laughs> if you didn't go to the bathroom, you wouldn't have seen it. <laughs> no. But it was like they had me choose a bunch of different quotes and things that sort of were relevant to themes that might be in a strange loop. And one of the quotes I put up was this Toni Morrison quote from 1975 talking about racial representation mm -hmm. and, like, Black people having to prove how human they are. And mm -hmm. she could say there will always be one more thing. And that's, like, sort of how I feel about every time I'm asked to talk about the quote-unquote white gaze. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And as well how she didn't, the white gaze wasn't important in her work, really. Right. And I kind of felt that with yours, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't prioritize white people when I'm writing. But also, more than that, I question even the notion of the white gaze to some extent because in my life, 
I'm not walking around with a third person floating above me and me thinking about what that third person perceives me to be. Right. I'm fine that I'm often asked to reflect on the quote-unquote white gaze, but all I'm doing is being myself. So, like, is being myself confronting the white gaze? Like, I'm looking at the white gaze right now as I'm talking to you. But, like, what am I doing? I'm just talking to you. (laughs) I know. There's nothing sort of super special about it. I know. Do you know what I mean? And I find that to be interesting. Yeah. So, like, when I think about even my own work as an artist, Mm -hmm. I'm very self-centered. You know, like, I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about and what I care about. And, yes, that does include being, like, a black man in the world. Right. But I don't have this extra side project called <laughs> Confronting the White Gaze. <laughs> There's nothing <gasps> feeds a hunger like a thirst. Maybe I'm tired of fighting. I always wanted you. So that's this. Um, Liz Fair song that's also called Strange Loop and I suppose that's no accident because you're a fan of hers aren't you? Liz Fair is one of my songwriting idols Really? I first sort of became aware of her um, in 2003 when she put out the album that everyone hated and I didn't hate it I actually liked it it was an eponymous album And I was curious enough to go back and revisit her first album, Exile in Guyville. And when I heard that album, I was like, holy shit, I can't believe that the same person did these two wildly different things. And I became like really curious about her and I started doing more and more research and getting the rest of her albums and I just fell wildly in love with her moxie, her badassness and like the way in which she defied any attempts to put her in a box. Mm -hmm. And do you have a favorite song by her? It's hard to pick out a favorite song from from Liz's catalog, but if like if you had to put a gun to my head, it would probably be Divorce Song. I mean, it's just like it's so perfect. But if I'd known how that would sound to you, I would have stayed in your bed for the rest of my life just to prove I was right. That it's harder to be friends and lovers And you shouldn't try to mix the two Cause if you do it and you're still unhappy Then you know that the problem is you And it's true that I stole your lighter And it's also true that I lost the map 
But when you said that I wasn't worth talking to, I had to take your word on that. It just has a, a musical quality to it that's really rocking, but then it's also like really emotionally vulnerable. It's just a really well-constructed song, and it's produced really, really well. Did you ever meet her? I met Liz a couple of times over the years, like in passing. We were hoping that she might come to a strange loop because there's like references to her in it, but she was like already back in LA. So tell me about the new musical that you're working on. The title is like pretty much the best thing I've ever heard. White Girl in Danger is a sort of satirical dark comedy set in the world of lifetime original movies in the nineties. Oh, like those movies like She's Cried No. I said no. But he pinned me down and ripped off my clothes. She fought alone. Mother Man Sleep with Danger, etc. Danger, 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 danger. Um, and it's sort of a meditation on racial representation in stories. Because I grew up really loving soap operas. That was, like, my main mode of storytelling from, like, a very young mm. age. Actually, when I came to New York, I wanted to be a soap opera writer. Like The Bold and the Beautiful? Like The Bold and the Beautiful. I wanted to be the head writer of One Life to Live. I just don't believe this story about the car breaking down. You know what? I think I, think I was right all along. I think you've got some woman hiding around here. Is that <laughs> Um, that was like, and I did all my internships yeah. at Soaps. I interned at all my children. Jack, wait! Jack, please don't go. I love you. After I graduated, I did a 12 week consulting job as a youth marketing consultant for wow. ABC Daytime. Um, I like wanted to write for Soaps and yeah. like, and also Lifetime movies and stuff. But I never actually got to do that because I sort of fell in love with playwriting. But White Girl in Danger was my way of sort of like scratching that itch. It's set in this world called All White, which is sort of as though you took every Lifetime original movie, every soap opera world, and just smashed it into a giant universe. <laughs> and in the world of All White, there's something called the Blackground. And the Blackground... <laughs> is black characters who are just there to sort of support alt-white stories. And one of the characters, the background characters, is this girl named Keisha, who decides that she's got what it takes to lead her own all-white story. So she sets out to appropriate the whiteness from her three main rivals, um, Negan, Megan, and Megan. (laughs) And they sort of have the trope sort of problems that a, a white girl in danger has in that world. <laughs> Negan has a, an abusive boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Megan has an eating disorder. <laughs> and Megan struggles with drugs and alcohol. And so Keisha sort of figures out how right. to take those identities away from them for herself. And once she does that, that's when the killer comes <gasps> after her. Black girls never get to be the center. That's a space we cannot enter with the chains on our feet. Black girls tread a path that's been dictated and is rarely deviated. We're like cops on the beat. Black girls, we don't get to wonder freely. Just like that behind the we can never compete. Forget this. Girl, when I was a kid growing up watching 
these soap operas. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize when I was watching them that the very fabric of storytelling I learned at an early age was about, is the white girl okay? I learned about, like, who is important in stories through watching these white women and girls in these stories. Right. And so, like, White Girl and Dangerous sort of my attempt to sort of, like, address the consequences of that. Wow. And where can we see that? I am still developing it. So there's a theater that is going to do a developmental workshop of it soon. Do you want me to play Keisha? (laughs) 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 Thanks for coming in, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Bye. In addition to White Girl in Danger, starring yours truly, Michael R. Jackson is also working on a musical adaptation of the 2007 horror film Teeth. You can find out more about his upcoming projects on his website, which has a very cool name, thelivingmichaeljackson.com. Okay, coming up, why the artist Molly Crabapple loves New York. As long as you are a tough hustler, you are a New Yorker. Like the dude from Ghana who is selling, you know, purses on Canal Street is a New Yorker. Uh, Becky from Connecticut is not a New Yorker. That's next in Studio 360. Studio 360. I'm drawing you right now. Is that what you're drawing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Well, um, hi, it's Maeve Higgins again, filling in for Kurt Anderson, whoever that is. And I was recently joined in studio by writer Molly Crabapple, who brought in her sketchbook. Wow, (laughs) that's cool. So is it distracting while I'm talking or you can do both, it seems like? I can do both. Yeah. So Molly is a freelance artist and journalist illustrating and reporting on conflicts around the world. You can find her stuff on Vice, the New York Times, and more recently I've been following her in the New York Review of Books. Her work captures haunting moments that cameras are not able to. I mean literally not able to, like the inside of Guantanamo Bay detention camp where photography is restricted. I think the work that really resonates with me a lot are the drawings of people, like the faces of asylum seekers at the Texas border, or the people living in these bombed out neighborhoods in Gaza. And then the way she draws them, they're sort of covered in her own accidents, red and black splotches. And her work just gives this subjective, like really on the ground perspective that I certainly haven't seen anywhere else. Molly also collaborated with Syrian writer Marwan Hisham to capture life inside ISIS-occupied Syria. And together they created this extraordinary book. It's called Brothers of the Gun. And it was nominated actually last year for a National Book Award. Now, Molly would keep sketching me throughout the interview, but we started off by her showing me what else was in her sketchbook. This is my uh, Puerto Rico slash India sketchbook. It has uh, drawings from the recent protests in Puerto Rico and also of uh, Farmer's March in India last year. I've been pronouncing Puerto Rico wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not for the light. So wait, you were in India. What were the farmers protesting about and who were you covering it for and what was your role there? The farmers are protesting uh, climate change and also these unpayable debts. And I believe it was over a million people from all over India. They walked to Delhi and they protested in front of the parliament. Can I have a look at one of the farmers' march pictures? Yes. 
Look at that. This is incredible. Thank you. Yeah, they, they had these uh, unionized Sikh guys and they were very, very handsome, dapper guys, even though they'd been walking for God knows how many miles. Did I see them somewhere? Did you publish them? Uh, on the York Review of Books also, right. my, my patron saints. When you do that kind of work, do you have a purpose in mind or are you, I'm just recording this? You know, with that one, I I just wanted to, to get it down. I mean, I think I, I could say I have all sorts of socially improving purposes, but... Ultimately, I think all artists are motivated by a fundamental greed to capture life and a fundamental greed to draw. And, you know, if I do something improving, that's cherry on top. But I just wanted to capture it. Yeah. I have beside me Brothers of the Gun, which is your latest book. Yes. And it's a collaboration with Marwan Hisham. Yes. Who's um, a really amazing Syrian writer. Can you tell us what Brothers of the Gun is about? Brothers of the Gun is uh, Marwan's memoir that starts in the early days of the revolution with him flinging back tear gas canisters at the cops and takes the reader through the decimation of the revolution's hopes and through the occupation by ISIS. Right. When you read this, you go inside Raqqa, which is was physically impossible for a lot of, certainly Westerners, for most of us in the world. But he brings you in there. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. Marwan and I, we started working together in 2014 uh, when we only knew each other through Twitter. And he had, I think, the only account that was tweeting in English from inside ISIS-occupied Raqqa. Uh, I was learning Arabic, and he was helping me with that. And then one day I asked him, I said, you know, Marwan, do you have any photos on your phone just showing your life in Raqqa? And he said, uh, I don't, but I can take some. And I said, isn't that going to be uh, dangerous, Marwan? And he's like, nah, nah, it's my city. Don't worry about it. You know, lying, of course. Yeah. And he went around risking his life to take these photos that showed uh, the truth of the ISIS occupation you know, something he would have been probably beheaded on tape for. There was so little space for like a working class Syrian dude to publish his thoughts in the U.S. publishing industry. That was a shame. And so we decided to we decided to create this together and uh, we co-wrote it together. Uh, I drew it, but he art directed it. I consider um, the illustrations also equally his because he... Oh, interesting. Uh, well, you know, it's not like I had photos for most of them. Yeah. For, for most of them, he was explaining um, what he saw to me. And then I'm doing sketches and then he's telling me I'm wrong and giving right. me reference and you know, back and forth. And um, of course, you know, we're dealing with a book that was in, you know, all the horrors of ISIS and... But there's also this one illustration that really stuck with me, which is he's talking about his garden. Like for a while, I guess people do all sorts of things to cope with like living under that kind of stress. Yeah, I wanted to to draw the the sprouts. And even though there is, you know, horrors of the type that I have never experienced in my life, people also live and they also fall in love and they plant gardens and they try to, um, you know, make make lives for themselves. And I've often felt that sometimes the view of America towards uh, countries in the Arab world, that these are perpetually war-torn countries. And because of that, it almost makes America more comfortable bombing them because they think, oh, these countries are just always war-torn. These countries are always rubble. These countries don't have anything of value. 
So speaking of rubble, let's check in on your drawing of my face. <laughs> How's it coming along? It's going good. It's going also, good. Molly. I've been uh, you. drawing this um, this very complicated microphone in front of you. Yeah, I know. I think it's an omni mic, whatever. It, so it goes all the way around. But um, yeah, sometimes people come to comedy shows and draw us. And But this one, this is incredible. Thank you. Yeah. They're often like really hammered as they're drawing. Oh, oh God. Oh. <laughs> There's nothing worse than when someone draws you and it's it's bad and you have to like kind of smile. I've had this, like people will draw me and I, I my nose, I look like, you know, it looks like an upside down six or something, you know, <laughs> I look like some sort of misogynistic caricature. And I'm like, oh, thank you. That looks, that looks great. <laughs> really, please <laughs> don't post that. <laughs> Um, so could you describe your drawing style for people that do, that can't see what you're doing right now? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have a specific school. I mm-hmm. I think I'm someone who's incredibly impatient, and that's why I draw <laughs> so fast, um, which turned out to be very good for journalism because I could get things down really fast, you know, uh, before, before people moved or yeah. before a cop found out what I was doing. Yeah. I was very influenced by Toulouse-Lautrec, the uh, French painter who did the can-can stuff, and um, by Aubrey Beardsley, uh, by Diego Rivera, Goya, uh, Ralph Steadman, obviously. So one recent work of yours that went viral is this very cool video by Naomi Klein and The Intercept. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is narrating her vision of the Green New Deal. And we see this time-lapse footage and it's you illustrating what she's saying. It's just like your hand holding a paintbrush, using ink and watercolours. And then those drawings come to life before our eyes as she's speaking. Yeah. Ah, the bullet train from New York to D.C., So it starts out with AOC sitting in this, like, sleek, modern, super cool, you know, bullet train, looking a little bit older. She has a Susan Sontag uh, streak of white in her hair. (laughs) Very cool white tailored suit. And what we wanted to do with this video is we wanted to give this uh, feeling of time travel. The wave began when Democrats took back the House in 2018 and then the Senate and the White House in 2020 and launched the decade of the Green New Deal. It was so cool because usually what the the subjects I focus on, they're often about, uh, you know, prisons, uh, incarceration of immigrants, uh, incredibly grim, tragic things. And it was really nice to be able to do something that was utopian. Right. Right. And then, like, I love how she's like the children, you know, in our communities are so excited. And then there's like cute little cutouts of just like happy kids. Yeah, exactly. Like happy little girls. (laughs) I'll never forget the children in our community. They were so inspired to see this new class of politicians who reflected them navigating the halls of power. One of the things that was kind of funny about the reaction to this video was I, I drew, uh, you know, people of all sorts of backgrounds in this video. There's blonde people, there's black people, there's Latinas, there's, you know, Asian people, people of every type. And yet, uh, when this was released, these conservatives became convinced that there were no white people in really? the video. Yeah. And they became convinced that the video was about white genocide. Oh, God. And they would even post screenshots that had, like, white people in them and say that they weren't there. And it just made it was such an illustration of how if there's any sort of equity and representation these people are just triggered and have a giant freak out oh my god I mean, one thing that for me, my favorite part in it is towards the end mm-hmm. I drew this image of Grand Army Concourse in the Bronx we can be whatever 
we have the courage to see. But with, you know, community gardens and like community musicians everywhere and solar panels and bullet train, all that sort of stuff. And I was kind of sick of images of the future that looked like Dubai. I wanted something that looked like the actual, you know, city that I you know, come from, which is New York, and that kept the most beautiful parts of you know, our heritage as New Yorkers while also um, bringing in the parts to make it a sustainable future. Yeah. How are you feeling about being in New York? You seem to travel a lot. So do you, do you feel like you live here? I do. I mean, I'm, I'm from New York mm-hmm. and I'm from Farakaway originally. And I, my family's lived here for like over 100 years on my mom's side um, and my dad's side since, you know, the, his dad immigrated, you know, to get a factory job in the 50s. And so I do feel like it is my home and probably always will be. And I, I love it. I love this city. And I was trying to think about why I loved New York so much, despite <laughs> so many problems that it has <laughs> no. and so many infuriating things. And what I liked about New York is that New York is a city where anyone can become a New Yorker. You don't have to learn English to be a New Yorker. You don't have to uh, change you know, the clothing of the country that you're from. Uh, you can be from anywhere in the world. You can practice whatever religion. As long as you are a tough hustler, you are a New Yorker. <laughs> like the dude from Ghana who is selling, you know, purses in um, on Canal Street is a New Yorker. Uh, Becky from Connecticut is not a New Yorker. And to me, it is this perfect example of how you can have inclusiveness and belonging without this forcible assimilation. Right. So I have a question for you, actually. Mm. So you're an immigrant, but you're a European immigrant, which mm. is always um, in a slightly different category. Is there pressure for you to assimilate in America? The pressure for me comes from Irish America, where they're so thrilled to see me. And these are like, you know, third, fourth, fifth generation Irish Americans. Then I start talking about what I think <laughs> and how I'm feeling when I'm here and also about what Ireland is like at the moment. We were the first country to legalize same-sex marriage. Like we just got abortion, thank God. Like it's not like we're some progressive beacon, but a lot of Europe is moving to the right and, and Ireland isn't. Meanwhile, Irish America is moving and is the very much established right. So, I mean, Mike Pence loves his Irishness. Oh, God. I know. We're so proud of him, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know he was Irish. I mean, maybe this is maybe I'm cruelly stereotyping, but I thought that there was no one more white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in the world. You know, isn't it funny? Yeah, yeah. But no, he's not. He's um, he's very proud of his Irish granddad. He often uses this poor man, and he was like, "You need to be like my grandfather." Like he came from Mayo in 1921, and <laughs> oh, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. My grandfather came here because he believed in the promise of America. And he lived it. He drove a bus for 40 years in Chicago, Illinois. He raised my precocious mother, who's still 85 years young. But we live the American dream. Yeah, like, that's a cute story, but he leaves out some things. Like, in 1921, there was a civil war in Ireland, so wasn't he lucky he was allowed in? Not like the poor Assyrians today. Yes. But Molly, don't get me started on Mike Pence. (laughs) It looks like you're finished your drawing of me now. Indeed, I have. I love it, Molly. I'm Thank so, you. Like, I'm so chuffed that you would even, like, I, sh- I feel like I should, um, I don't know what I can do, write a routine about you or something. Oh, dear. <laughs> Pay you in jokes or something. <laughs> but this is so great. And you got my hair and everything. I look quite stricken. 
I think I think I, I blame myself, not you. I, I, I the mic looks slightly insectoid. Um, I think you were you were looking up. You might have been uh, speaking about uh, being being expected to conform to Irish American stereotypes at that moment. That would definitely explain my face. <laughs> Don't don't adopt me, Mike Pence. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> don't claim me as your own. Thank you so much for the drawing and for your insight and for the work that you do. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thanks, Molly. Brothers of the Gun by Marwan Hisham and Molly Crabapple is in bookstores now. And you can see the drawing that Molly made of me on studio360.org. Now, Molly's politically engaged art brings to mind somebody else, this French photo artist who goes by JR. He's widely known for plastering his gigantic black and white photos all over the world's buildings and walls. And the first I heard of him was when I saw pictures of this huge installation he made on the fence that marks the US-Mexican border. You might have seen it too. It's this very cute little Mexican toddler who's peeking over the fence into America. And that artist, JR, he was on the show a while back talking about that piece. I dream about walls and that's true because, you know, I'm always pasting on walls. Now, I dream also about borders because, you know, often they are walls. And uh, that's why one of my earliest projects in the Middle East were on the separation wall, security fence between Israel and Palestine. And when I started hearing a lot about the wall in the news, the wall between U.S. and Mexico, you know, that already exists, uh, you know, since like 2007, I think, or something like that. I wanted to go uh, there and scout it. And I saw that the fans, you know, had see-through. So I imagine um, someone looking over the wall. Now, the first door I knocked at because the house was very close from the wall on the Mexican side, the woman opened and told me that she was following me on Instagram. And then... You know, she really knew my work. So she was like, you can paste on the side of my house if you want. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually looking to do something a bit bigger. And then that whole time there was this little kid in his crib looking at me. And he was, you know, just one year old and looking at me and then also looking at the wall because they live right by it. And then I left. And then when I was driving to Tijuana on the way, I was like, wait, that's the kid. That's the kid that I should photograph that should be looking over the wall because I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what his political views are. He's one year old. He don't even know what's a fence. And so I came back, photographed him and installed him, uh, I think 60 foot something high, so three times the size of the wall, uh, looking over the wall like a giant sculpture. And if you look perfectly, the, the hands are touching exactly the wall. So there's only one position to look at it from and where the hands hits perfectly the wall. So for all the people that came and visited when it was up, they would actually look at it and try to find the angle to take the photo and often you would have a border patrol car passing or someone walking and and that's what the little kid is looking over. That was the artist Jay Orr and you can see more of his work. It's on view at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art and that's now through April 2020. Coming up. I will offer prayers to 
Saint Jude, the patron saint of hopeless causes. But first, $200 cash only for. I have not forgotten. Uh, oh, this must be your My grand grandson. Yes. <laughs> That's ahead in Studio 360. Studio 360. There's a fine line between faith and fraud in a new theatre production here in New York. In the Philippines, Felix Saro claims to have performed miracles curing the sick and dying. His clients once included celebrities and politicians, but eventually he falls on hard times. So he leaves the Philippines and travels with his grandson to San Francisco to try his luck with expat Filipinos in the Bay Area. My hands, my face, everything goes numb suddenly. It comes and goes, but I am so afraid. The doctors say I have multiple sclerosis. There's no cure, though. But what do they know? They don't care about people like us. You're the only one who can really help. You believe in my gift, Vanji. You always have. I will extract those negativities quickly and painlessly. With the psychic guru craze of the 1970s and 80s as a backdrop, this is a story of family rifts and the Filipino experience in America. And it's also a crisis of belief for the characters involved. The new musical is called Felix Darrow and it recently opened at Theatre Row. Felix Darrow is back. Our prayers answered. He's kept his promise. He's back at last. He'll cure what ails me. He'll cure what ails you. Believe. Hi, I'm Alan Ariano and I play Felix Darrow. Welcome to San Francisco, Junior. <laughs> Not exactly what you were expecting, diba? Right? Felix is a faith healer in the Philippines and his high time fame was in the 70s and they had a downfall because of the outings of these faith healers. So he's trying to restore his reputation as well as get a whole new group of followers in San Francisco and he brings his grandson, Junior. Should I get medicine for your cough, Lolo? I don't want you to get sicker. Who said I was sick? Have faith in your Lolo, apo? Hi, I'm Nacho Tambunting, and I play Junior. We should move to a better hotel. Your patient... No! For Junior, the relationship with his grandfather is uh, very close. He adopted him when his parents died, and so this is his only family, really. And he doesn't really know anything else. I will offer prayers to St. Jude, the patron saint of hopeless causes. But first... $200 cash only for... I have not forgotten. Uh, oh, this must be your grandson. My grand grandson, yes. <laughs> Felix Taro relies on Junior a lot, and Junior supports him and sort of just listens to what he says, and he doesn't have his own hopes or dreams. What ensues is his grandson has doubts and has his own plans, and um, that's what uh, evolves throughout the show. What about the other people? What about other people? Back home, like, like Mayor Agbayani. His gout came back. Then he got prostate cancer. Then he died. And you were blamed, and everyone, they stopped believing. Oi! 
Who the hell do you think you are talking to? Sorry, I didn't mean any disrespect, Lolo. My name is Francisca Munoz. What kind of pain, Mrs. Delgado? Where? I play Mrs. Delgado. I feel it here and here, always here and even here. Mrs. Delgado has this unknown illness that no one has been able to tell her exactly what it is or, or even help her. She truly believes that he's going to help her. And I think it's almost like when she goes to see him, he is really her last hope. I have a very dear friend of mine who is suffering with Lyme disease. And she has been to every single doctor that you could think of. And every single one told her she was crazy. She was just making it up. It was a common cold. She had the flu. You know, with her permission, I used a lot of that to pull into the character of Mrs. Delgado. Oh, I feel heat radiating from your hands. Giving you my good energy, drawing out the bad. Parang exchange, ma'am. Is it real that the faith healers can cure their patients? Or is it from the positive thinking and the, and the energy? As far as Felix is concerned, um, he really believes that what he's doing is, is helping people. And that's where the friction comes in, because I don't think Junior believes it. He's becoming open to the reality that it's, we may be hurting these people as opposed to helping them. For Junior, it's really, you know, when you find out that Perhaps your whole life is a lie and the person that you admire and you love the most is actually not the best person. So far, psychic surgery has not been subjected to laboratory testing, although some of the healers have been willing to come to this country for demonstration purposes. My name is Jorge Ortol. I was formerly executive director of MAI and now I am a board member. I do remember... Um, a faith healer very big in the 70s and 80s by the name of Akpawa. Of the over 37 psychic surgeons now practicing in the Philippines, Tony Akpawa is the only one who accepts money for his services. Celebrities would come to the Philippines and be healed or, or get to know him. And I know he became immensely wealthy. It has been estimated that he has received as much as $500,000 from patients he has operated on. And he would buy real estate property, and then, eventually, it all went away. He was exposed as a hoax. He just fell into disgrace. I think it was the most prominent one that we've had in the Philippines in the 70s and 80s. There are others. I did a lot of research on actual visual references, watching videos, looking at photographs. My name is Ralph Pena. I'm the director. We all sort of came to realize that, that it wasn't for us to judge. The faith healing ritual itself is not potentially what heals someone who's ailing, but their belief in the ritual. It's hard to just dismiss it the way Western media dismissed it. It's the syncretic nature of, of our religion with the pagan indigenous rituals, with our deep Catholicism. It's not like any faith healing experience elsewhere in the world. I think that's what makes it Filipino. My name is Jessica Hagedorn. I'm the book writer and the lyric writer. I'd watched Ralph's directing of plays um, over the years with Maie, and I could think of no other better person to direct it. 
And we all remember that time when the faith healer was a thing in the 70s. And this opportunity came up collaborating with Fabiano Bespoke, the composer, because the music is such a big part of it. Paranormal. Paranormal. Supernatural. Supernatural. Spiritual. Spiritual. Charismatic. Friday nights is 10. Remember when psychic surgery phenomena. We have bandied this about as the first off-Broadway musical created by Filipino-Americans. Early on, the knock on this musical was that it didn't sound Filipino enough. To me, it's like, whoa, what does Filipino sound? Yes, because our history is sort of so convoluted and naughty, and, and we've had multiple influences, Western, Eastern, going through the country, that this is our musical heritage. Our colonial experience gives us all these different types of flavor. And also to just get away from the notion that Filipino music is ethnic music, it's not. And also because this is set in San Francisco and it's from a Filipino-American's perspective. For us to suddenly put in a gamelan didn't feel right. And uh, the eclecticism, I think, is one of the strengths of the score. I'm the fixer of identities. My name is Ching Valdez Aran. I play Flora Ramirez. I'm the changer of identities. You understand? Flora basically uh, tries to help undocumented Filipino immigrants who needs to stay here and make fake licenses and social security card. I don't know anybody who does that. At that time, when I was growing up, I knew a lot of friends who were undocumented and trying to have their papers. It's very moving, in a way, for me. Why is she risking her status here? Why would she do that? All they want, all they need, I am here to give. John Arroyo Cruz, that song is, affects me a lot. John Arroyo Cruz, born and raised in Riverside, CA. Nako, I cannot pass. Nako, what if he haunts me? It's very powerful, you know, what does it mean to change your identity, to become a new person in a place where you know no one? A boy who is dead Becoming someone else In this bright new land The undocumented is part of the United States history. It has been since, since day one. The diaspora experience is always an attempt to define home and reconstruct it in many, many different forms. As immigrants, constructing a home in this country is not an easy task. It seems like we're always pining for it, because where, in fact, do we belong? Rich and fertile, motherland, sodden, gentle... And we're all first-generation people. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're a reluctant immigrant, 
I'm only going to speak for myself, but it wasn't like uh, I was ready to come here when we did. And the idea of home, it's still painful for me. You know, uh, it never goes away. Glorious fiery sunsets, pliant bamboo trees swaying, laughing eyes that break your heart. So this feels to me like at least one way to humanize the immigrant story. To me, the tie is that the tragedy that's happening in our southern borders are mostly Catholic, uh, faith-driven people coming to look for hope and refuge and to be able to, like, you know, dream. And very early on, I said, we have to earn that moment in this play and that we honor all those faces, right? It's sad that it's so resonant uh, with, with what's happening today. Hiding, always hiding. Dream big and risk everything. Underneath, underground. Disappear and die a little. Swallow tears and regret. Gotta be brave and forget. Speak and call. Felix Darrow is written by poet and novelist Jessica Hagedorn in collaboration with composer Fabian Obispo and director Ralph Pena of Maggi Theatre Company. It's based on Leslie Tenorio's short story of the same title and the musical runs through September 21st at Theatre Row in New York. Studio 360's own Jocelyn Gonzalez produced that story. Sadly, for this week, that's it. The show is ending. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. The production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalve, Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian, Morgan Flannery, Kurt Anderson, and I'm Maeve Higgins. You can find my writing in the New York Times or in my actual book, Maeve in America. And Maeve in America is also my Instagram. I live there. And I just fell wildly in love with her moxie, her badassness, and like the way in which she defied any attempts to put her in a box. I had such a wonderful time here in Studio 360. My gratitude goes out to all the production team and to Kurt. You know, I think I'm going to keep the robe, but I'll leave him his glasses. And thank you too for listening and for being here with me today. PRI. Public Radio International. Hey, I'm Hanif Abdurecki. I'm a writer and poet and, for one week, your Studio 360 host. Next time on Studio 360... It's the only book that I've ever finished and then started again. <laughs> like, immediately. Writer Ashley C. Ford on Toni Morrison. The more I read it, the more I saw myself. That's next time on Studio 360...